Blog Talk Radio. Okay, so hello everybody. This is Healing from Harmony Hall. I'm very excited today to be joined by Richard and Karen Cook. They basically represent, as far as I can see, an amazing vision, which seems to be what this program is turning out to be looking for, is people who have a vision about understanding what's been happening in the world and where we can go from here. Richard has a massive credibility in that he has worked on both sides of the American culture. He's been working for, for the government for more than 30 years. I did until I retired about five years ago. Brilliant. And then demonstrated a lot of courage to um, address what was happening in NASA and in the government at large at the time. And so if you tell us about your work initially at NASA and, and what happens around the time of the Challenger. Well, I had worked for the federal government in Washington from 1970 on, and I worked at a couple agencies, and then I was in the Carter White House for uh, about a year. Uh, at the time that President Carter was uh, defeated for the uh, presidential election of 1980 by uh, Ronald Reagan, and that represented a massive shift to the right in American politics. I ended up, after a couple side trips, working for NASA on the space shuttle program. I was a, a financial analyst and a technical report writer. And uh, at that time, the space shuttle was just beginning to be used for military weapons testing. Uh, even though that was really downplayed uh, by the press and by NASA. And that's ordinary uh, ordinary weapons, or would they have been nuclear weapons? The objective was to use very highly developed uh, laser uh, beam weapons, uh, particle beam weapons, and then at a certain point they were very interested in putting nuclear weapons into space even though the treaties at the time prohibited that. They had this long-term notion that uh, space would be uh, used for uh, these space battle platforms. Uh, and Which it was, really went against <clears throat> NASA's stated mission that you told me. Yeah. Right, she something. Yeah, the, the National Aeronautics and Space Act of 1958 created NASA as a peaceful agency for the exploration of space not just for the U.S., but for all peoples. So this was basically a violation of that mandate. And uh, even though the space shuttle was a very highly experimental piece of uh, technology, they were treating it as a, uh, a kind of uh, all-purpose vehicle to put up commercial satellites, uh, communication satellites, uh, scientific probes to outer space and now bringing in these weapons systems. So they were trying to do everything with it, but there were some very serious technical problems remaining because, uh, you know, it, it was a, an experiment to, even at that date, to fly uh, humans into space and, and even is today. Uh, and yet they were pushing the uh, capabilities of it way beyond what it could do. And there were a lot of serious problems, and I was working closely with the engineers at NASA there who were telling me all of these problems, and I was writing them all down and, and filing reports on them. 
including the technical problem that destroyed Challenger. This was uh, with the solid rocket boosters. So when Challenger did blow up, uh, and they had been warned by the engineers that that it could happen, NASA began uh, a cover-up of that. So essentially what I did was to pull together all the documents uh, that showed how long NASA had known of these problems and took the documents down to the New York Times and said, here, look at this. And they said, wow. Uh, and they published them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And my name was out in the press, and I was called before a presidential commission to testify. And I never went back to NASA. I, I spent the rest of my career at a rather obscure place in the U.S. Treasury Department, but even there I was learning a lot about the even world financial system, yeah. even even more but, uh, uh, problems. But that's the reason it was pushed through, even though there was warnings from yourself and from engineers, it's because it's become much more of a political uh, project than, than a NASA project. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, uh, it was being used by the Reagan administration as kind of a political backdrop for presidential publicity. And the Challenger flight of January 1986, in particular, was uh, politicized because when Reagan ran for president in 1984, uh, they came up with this idea of the teacher in space, because he was being accused at that time of being anti-education by the Democrats. And so they said, well, we're not anti-education. Look, we're going to put a teacher on the space shuttle. So it became a very highly... Uh, visible publicity stunt, essentially, by the Reagan administration to use the space shuttle and to use NASA for presidential politics. So that was another aspect of this particular incident. That, uh, Which is why uh, it launched the day it did. Is it? Yes. It launched the day it did because... Well, it was, uh, that night was President Reagan's State of the Union address. And he was going to mention the teacher in space, and there was talk even of him him having a telephone hookup to talk to uh, uh, the teacher in space, whose name was Krista McAuliffe, a young woman from New Hampshire, who was uh, going to talk on the phone with Reagan and, of course, give him a lot of publicity for being pro-education. And all of that came together uh, as part of the pressure that NASA was caving into when they decided to launch Challenger against all engineering warnings. Because the weather conditions were so poor, the cold affected the O-rings and made them rigid, and that it was they really should not have launched that day yeah. based on... Several major things. I mean, I think it's interesting term we use the well, literal term, teacher and state, mm-hmm. because, I mean, you've come to find out that the... There are other teachers in in space. Yeah, right. Right. Well, uh, as I was saying last night in in the talk that we did here, uh, here here on Valencia, the uh, one reason that NASA was created in 1958. This was the era of the UFOs. Uh, And uh, UFOs had been around uh, only for a little over a decade. Uh, since around World War II. That people were aware of. That people were aware of. And and so uh, uh, as part of its space exploration mission, NASA was created to uh, find uh, the source of uh, outer space intelligence. 
And the, one of the first people I met when I came to Washington in 1970 was this a man who was part of NASA's search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, and NASA's been doing that ever since. Right now they have what they call the Kepler uh, space probe, which is a telescope out there that looks for Earth-like planets elsewhere in our galaxy that could support life. So NASA has been looking for uh, life in outer space uh, since it was created, but I think uh, among the most significant uh, sources of that information has been certain channeling uh, enterprises that have gone on by non-government people yes. uh, that have brought back a lot of very significant information about higher intelligences uh, from space who uh, have guided uh, affairs on Earth for thousands of years and are back today bringing very significant information to humans about the purpose of human life on Earth, the, the potential of human spirituality and intelligence, and how we ourselves can become part of that vast enterprise of growth, evolution, and expansion. Brilliant. Um, and I, and that's, that is an important factor in terms of their, the benevolence, because a lot of the sightings and information that is, is quite blatant has been suppressed or you know, possibly for you know, people's own good, it might be said, or, or because they've raised a lot of fear around the intentions right. uh, of the attacks or uh, abductions. Mm -hmm. These are words that are uh, bandied around. Right. Uh, but, um, but we know a bit about the benevolence, isn't something, Karen, from what you said about when there was unexplained or, or totally explained disarming of nuclear weapons, but when was that? And yeah, there have been a number of incidents reported where uh, UFO sightings have occurred near military bases, including bases in the United States and bases in England, uh, where uh, UFOs have appeared and in a couple cases uh, even have disarmed nuclear weapons. It's not explained what happened, but the UFOs are there and then they discover that the war has been disarmed. Yeah. Disarmed in a final way? Do we know what is disarmed? Well, the the mechanisms interfered with, you know, right. the, the electronic mechanisms that to, to render them harmless. Because there have been various times, as we know, in the last uh, generation, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, when the world has moved toward nuclear war. And uh, uh, it, it's never happened, but uh, a lot of people in the UFO community are fairly convinced that one of the purposes of the UFO visitations to Earth at this time are to prevent uh, us humans from blowing ourselves up. And uh, uh, one of the really authentic accounts of the eons uh, that we uh, have worked with, and, and we know the people who, who have been involved in these uh, uh, these channelings uh, who, who say that the uh, higher powers have made a very firm decision that they are not going to allow humanity to destroy the earth, that they will intervene to prevent that from happening. And uh, I believe that to be the case. Uh, and, and if you look back at the 
change that occurred in the 1980s and the 1990s in, rela in relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, where uh, in the uh, early 80s, uh, nuclear war was again looming as a real danger and a real possibility. Uh, well, uh, over a period of several years, that situation uh, reversed itself to the point where by the 90s, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had joined together in the creation of the International Space Station. Well, I was going to say that that, that was the unexpected blessing of that tragedy of of the Challenger that was right. pushed through was sort of the militarization or uh, of space had actually been halted successfully by that. that yes, that, that is a historical fact that the destruction of Challenger ended the uh, program uh, that was then underway by the U.S. government to weaponize space. Yes. They, they could not do it after that. So, yes, that, that was uh, a blessing in a way. And uh, I've even said uh, uh, that the deaths of the Challenger astronauts, that they were, in a sense, martyrs yes. to that, that their deaths came from the attempt to militarize space, but ended that attempt. And then by the 90s, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and, and again, you look at the, what the people in the UFO community say, is that the U.S. and the Soviet Union then decided, well, we've got to join together uh, in space now to uh, begin to study and understand uh, the uh, UFOs and the extraterrestrial presences uh, around Earth and, and stop trying to fight each other and rather uh, come together to cooperate to understand all of these things. And that I believe that's happened. And uh, when you talk about the UFO community, um, that is uh, people who uh, understand what's happening, or does it, would it include nearly everybody who is uh, experiencing the expansion of consciousness and awareness, and that they might or might not have had direct experience of that aspect of consciousness uh, to date? Well, it's, it's both. Yeah. The, what, what I mean by the UFO community are the people, and I include myself in this because uh, I've spoken publicly on uh, uh, the space program and, and on UFOs. Uh, it, it's generally people who have a benign outlook on the extraterrestrial phenomenon, who, who see it as being almost a normal manifestation of the growth of humanity's consciousness. That, that consciousness has gone within to discover the infinity of experience that we have within our own nature, but it's also looked at the infinity outside of us. And that infinity extends to the far reaches of the universe. Not that long ago, uh, people believed that the uh, uh, sun and the moon and the cosmos all revolved around the earth. And, and that was a, uh, gotten rid of a few centuries ago, but it's only been during the space age that we've realized that the universe is in effect infinite and that galaxy after galaxy after galaxy uh, are out there as far away as we can even imagine. And, and, there, and that there have to be presences uh, 
beings like us or higher than us who inhabit that vast universe as the ancient Gnostics believed and others have believed. Another aspect of the benevolence or the positive uh, input or the protective input was a very interesting slant on when he said that um, many eons came to Earth at a certain point and they actually uh, accelerated almost the problems that humanities faces in order to create a disparity in their experience and hurry up their evolution. Because uh, we tend to think, oh, we, we've just all got a super technologically intelligent and started ruining the place. <laughs> Whereas your, your understanding is that actually this was a, a catalyst for our evolution rather than just a destructive acceleration. Well, yes. There are, according to uh, the teachings that we work with, higher civilizations uh, that work with the uh, overseers, as it were, of our solar system uh, to guide humanity and who have, at different periods of our history, brought uh, higher knowledge to uh, humankind, both technological knowledge, uh, knowledge of art, knowledge of music, knowledge of science, many different types of, of knowledge. And you've got uh, uh, legends, uh, for example, with the rise of the Sumerian civilization, where virtually overnight uh, uh, they have gotten uh, an alphabet. They've gotten knowledge of agriculture. They received uh, knowledge of astrology. Uh, you see the same thing in ancient Egypt. Uh, where suddenly uh, higher ideas have appeared in a culture that before was very primitive. And the only rational explanation of that is that the higher powers uh, have come and have decided to bring these gifts of civilization. And, of course, any gift is a, is a two-edged sword. Like you see today, uh, the knowledge of science has been used uh, for very positive purposes in the fields of physics, of medicine, and yet they're also used to make weapons of mass destruction. So whether humanity has the maturity uh, to handle these things, of course, is, is open to question. Uh, but nevertheless, we've been given those gifts uh, for our ultimate uh, benefit. And if we were able to turn those gifts to a sharing of uh, ideas and of wealth and of resources among all of humanity, uh, humanity would have a tremendous opportunity for growth, both in consciousness and ethics and morals and all the other aspects of it. Uh, it's up to us to use these things properly, whether we use them to make a big mess of things or not, as often is the case. It's, it's really up to us to decide that every person has much more opportunity today than in the past to understand the world that we live in and to uh, just take, for example, the Internet. I'm, I'm quite convinced that the Internet was given to humanity by the higher powers. Uh, nothing else can explain the suddenness with which this has happened. Uh, and the tremendous increases in sharing and communications that has come from it. I mean, what you're doing here this morning with, with this interview is just one example of how the Internet uh, has and can be used for the expansion of human consciousness. 
And yet we also see big business trying to monopolize the Internet and, and governments using the Internet to spy on everybody. So it's Children using it to bully each other. Yeah. Um, great a mixture. Part of your vision is kind of personified or embodied by a current project that I think is probably being shared over the internet about taking a pledge to encourage the the powers that be to to offer something to every human being on the planet. Or how yes, does that work? this this is uh, what we call the Gaia. Uh, project or the, the Gaia proposal, Gaia referring, of course, to Mother Earth, who uh, is a higher, is an eon, as it were, a higher being, who uh, uh, gives a home to uh, her planetary children. Um, we have the ability in the world today, through technology, to provide every human being with uh, a subsistence survival level of uh, income. Uh, there's no reason other than human greed uh, that that uh, uh, that the resources of the earth should be increasingly uh, pulled into the control of the very rich and the very powerful, including the banking system, who lay claim to all the resources of the earth through their system of lending and, and uh, uh, <clears throat> collecting interest on uh, lending and all that goes with it, that money that is created by governments and by the banking system out of thin air that they use then to buy up and control everything could equally be used to give every human being on the planet a subsistence income sufficient to allow them to function freely in the marketplace and in life, and uh, we're part of a uh, organization in the U.S. <coughs> called the Basic Income Guarantee Network that advocates for this. Mm -hmm. I've spoken at their national conventions. Uh, I've spoken also uh, internationally on this, uh, advocating uh, the Gaia plan, and uh, uh, it could be done. And, and we also have learned that in Europe. Uh, there are petitions going around in all of the members of the European Union to try to gather uh, enough signatures so that the uh, basic income proposal will be debated by the European Parliament. And, and, and we think that's an excellent idea, and we encourage everyone in Europe, uh, and there's also a movement for that here in Ireland, to learn about this petition, to sign the petition, and then to advocate for the basic income guarantee when it comes before the European Parliament. There are parties growing everywhere, including Italy, Brazil, uh, in the U.S., New Zealand, uh, New Zealand and, and New Zealand probably has a greater degree of knowledge uh, of this topic than anywhere. Uh, I've, they've published... In their life or they have the background that came from research done in this area going back to the early 20th century. And uh, there's a magazine in New Zealand called the Guardian Political Review uh, that is uh, headed by uh, a man named Tony Carty uh, that I'm very closely in touch with. And, and they publish my material regularly, and I always try to put a plug in for them. If you want to meet people who understand money, and finance and how that can be used to benefit mankind rather than to rob mankind of their birthright, 
go to the Guardian Political Review of New Zealand, look it up on the internet, and you will find some amazing people and amazing knowledge of this subject that really everyone in the world should become aware of. That's extraordinary. Can you just uh, remind me and listeners, those two organizations and the ones that, if you were, if you were looking up to, to add your signature to, to this momentum in Europe or in America, who are the organizations you might look up to support? Yeah, uh, my proposal is the Gaia Plan. Uh, and you can uh, Google the Gaia Plan uh, and learn more about that, or my website. It's uh, www.richardccook.com. There's a C in there, because I had to use my middle initial to get that website. And you can read in there, and I also have a video on there of the speech I gave in June of this year uh, on this topic in California. YouTube also has a very the six-part series that you did. Right. In Maryland. Yeah, Karen helped produce that. It's a, it's called Credit as a Public Utility. It's a right. six-part video on YouTube, and you can Google that. The organization in the U.S. that advocates for this is the Basic Income Guarantee Network. Uh, in Europe the and elsewhere in the world, uh, it's BIEN uh, is the name of the organization that advocates for the basic income. Uh, and they are very strongly behind this movement within the European Union to get this on the agenda for the European Parliament. So any of those resources people can use uh, to find out more about this. But the, the thing to realize is that it's a very basic idea that seems obvious in the face of it, but, but it's something that people don't really understand. The banks create money out of nothing. Yes. They have a public charter to simply create credits that they then lend out for uh, all different kinds of purposes, including this tremendous building boom that we've seen in the U.S., and we see it here in Ireland. You see it everywhere in the world. The banks have just created this money for people to go uh, run, wild <laughs> run wild with, and it's 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 inflated housing prices everywhere to the point where working people cannot afford a house to live in. Uh, it's left uh, huge expanses of empty buildings because they can't rent finish them out, them. finish yeah. them. It's a disaster. And yet the banks have created under public charters. The governments have allowed them to do this. Well, why shouldn't that power of wealth creation be used to give all of the people of the world uh, a, a minimal amount of money simply to live on. It can be done and it should be done. Uh, and uh, the people who understand this uh, have been advocating for it for well over a century. This is not something that's just come out of the blue. Yeah. Uh, there have been movements for this, particularly in the English-speaking world, for, for a century. And it now is time to to start doing it because we see the financial crisis destroying the world all around us. And can I just say one thing? Yes. Um, the idea of the basic income guarantee isn't just so that we can all sit around at home, but it allows a flexibility of lifestyle so that if you have elders to take care of or children to take care of or you want to volunteer in something but can't afford to because you need to work, Yes. 12 hours a day, this would allow, um, I think it would be great to the public welfare that, that people would be allowed creative and nurturing pursuits that they otherwise 
might not be allowed because they have to work so many hours. Yeah, that makes brilliant sense. And you uh, also said um, uh, explain the difference between that and the a socialist um, right. uh, view. Yes, people people say, well, this is socialism, which is a complete error, yes. because socialism is, if you study it, socialism is the ownership of the means of production by the government. And this has nothing to do with the ownership of the means of production by the government. This has to do with using the public uh, uh, mechanism of money creation rather than giving it away for nothing to banks, which then use it to oppress humanity, giving it to the citizens of a country for them to use as they see fit in living their daily lives, including, as Karen said, for all kinds of humanitarian reasons, but also for starting small businesses or for working as a creative uh, person in the arts or uh, other enterprises like this. So it's not... Uh, oppressing everyone by the government owning everything. It's using the public power of, of wealth creation to benefit everyone at the grassroots level. It's a completely different concept uh, that uh, uh, lies at the basis of these proposals. And it can be done and it should be done. It would have oh, economic repercussions as well because there would be more money active within the economy for people to trade goods and services. Absolutely. So that would uh, it would exactly. actually stimulate yeah. the economy rather than in some way stagnating it. Right now we're sort of stagnant because people are holding on to their money because they're afraid they won't have enough yes. to make it through the next month or the next year. And so we're not out there freely, freely doing things that we would do if, if we had the means to do so. Yes, that makes total sense. Uh, the the <clears throat> the obvious situation from there is whether humanity or society is um, ready to take the power back in in Ireland and and quite possibly other places. The people have been stuck in a in a role of other governments making bad decisions. Poor me. They're right. taking into stepping into a responsible role where you're given an income and expected to participate in a conscious fashion is still quite remote. And I, and, I, and I think it might be a good moment to talk about how, at what point did you realize, or maybe it was always ongoing, that to become, to evolve yourself to this extent that you could take responsibility for yourself is to go within. What, what stage did that happen for, for you? Well, Karen and I have both been involved in the spiritual search since childhood, I would say. Oh, in different ways. In different ways. Karen, Karen grew up within the charismatic movement of the Catholic Church, which was a very uh, strong, mystical, I call it mystical, movement that came with Vatican II, yes. starting back in the 1960s, when suddenly there was this tremendous growth of spirituality among lay people within the Catholic Church. And did the Vatican II, that was quite a discerning uh, group, wasn't it, when questions were asked and, and, and the beliefs were grounded more in uh, what, was, what was happening, or was that... Yeah, and personal mystical experience. Karen yes. can explain that more than I can. Well, I can't explain Vatican II very well because I was only about five years old when it came about. <laughs> it was all <laughs> Right, but, but my parents, I think... By the time I was in my 
pre-teens, my parents were involved with the charismatic renewal, and that became a big part of my high school and college and beyond experience. And so there was always this sense of uh, not just sort of following the rules, but of also experiencing for yourself um, the spirit and and trying to motivate your your decisions in life and things based on spiritual, right, well, spiritual guidance, that sort of thing. Mine came through quite a different route. Uh, Mine came through the beatnik and hippie uh, movements and the uh, the uh, all the things that were happening when I was growing up in the 1960s, when uh, the West was really just discovering things like Zen Buddhism, and then after that Tibetan Buddhism, uh, other kinds of mystical teachings. And then uh, as, as I uh, moved on, and I was at the time working for the government because I needed a job, of course, obviously. But I was also doing a lot of other things on the side, including in the 1990s when I met a guru from India named Shiva Bala Yogi, uh, uh, who I still uh, have a relationship with. I saw him just this past year and really began to delve deeply into Eastern meditation and the practices that go with that. And uh, uh, because here was the the paradox was that even as the world was... uh, uh, exploding in knowledge of physics and chemistry and astronomy and all of these things. Why should a human being be just a you know a, a small weak uh, entity condemned to suffer and to die? You know where was our own participation in the infinity of the universe? Well, it became apparent that the infinity of the universe was to be sought within ourselves, not just outside ourselves. And the path to do that. Uh, was through meditation uh, because uh, the the Eastern teachings, and I believe also the original teachings of Christianity, showed the infinite potential of the human uh, spirit. Uh, So to discover that potential became a matter of great urgency to me, uh, also for some very personal reasons, you know, having to do with health issues and, and uh, relationship issues and things like that. Uh, you, you've got to find a way to live with yourself and to go beyond yourself. Because if you don't, then you're just, you know, you're going to uh, suffer, get old and die, and then what is the good of anything? Yes. So there had to be a way out of that. And so my search involved uh, not only learning about the world outside me, but about the world inside as well. And then when Karen and I met a few years ago and began to put together our own search, our own aspirations, uh, and we began to uh, have these uh, contacts with people who were doing research into the eons and other expressions of transcendental consciousness, we really began a very rapid (laughs) growth. Uh, We began to teach meditation classes, to work with people in the community. I began to write uh, books. Uh, I've got four books out now, the latest being Return of the Eons, The Planetary Spiritual Ascension. And that's when we began to meet people all around the world who have the same aspirations as we do 
to grow in consciousness and to begin to experience the infinity of consciousness as well as the infinity of science and technology. That, yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. And there's community connections formed there. But when you... Um, well, and actually I'm, I'm laughing because I, when you said that when you when you met, um, everything starts to take on a new uh, speed. And somebody said to me once... Um, yeah, relationships with the new ashram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it all comes up for dealing with now and then. There's no need to go further afield. But uh, you've used the word eons, and people have different. Some people would use the word for one thing and some for another. But could you say a little bit more about uh, who the eons are for you? The word eons comes from ancient Gnosticism, uh, the spiritual teaching that. Um, existed around the time of Christ and uh, created this... There were were a number of different schools. It was a very loosely uh, organized movement that went on for several centuries. But uh, the basic idea was that humans can become awake to divine consciousness and that there have been beings uh, who have who live in the cosmos and who from time to time, and maybe all the time, we just don't see them, have guided affairs on earth to help man elevate himself to this higher degree of consciousness. So you look at different texts uh, that were written uh, in ancient times that uh, have come to light uh, over the years, but the most important ones came out of the discoveries of the Gnostic scriptures at Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1945, when there were whole uh, manuscripts discovered that talked about the higher powers that uh, oversaw humanity. Uh, And uh, the word that they used for this was eons, A-E-O-N-S. And it was said at different times there were different numbers of eons, that there, in some texts there were 30 eons, one of them being... Sophia, the the uh, divine mother, uh, the the embodiment of divine wisdom. An, another of the eons was Christ. Uh, the idea being that uh, the the person uh, Jesus uh, himself attained uh, a high degree of divine consciousness, but that the uh, uh, divine consciousness itself was uh, something that all people could aspire to experiencing and to embodying because uh, it was not just a, a person in history, but it was a level of being that was always there and to which we could we could uh, look towards and, and attempt to achieve. So this was uh, an idea that to me was uh, very revolutionary. And so I began to... Uh, uh, study it seriously uh, and learned in time there have been many different expressions of this throughout spiritual history including the Christian idea of the uh, angels and archangels uh, come from the same sources uh, the Buddhists have ideas of many different levels of, of divine consciousness the Egyptians uh, the, the, you know, the gods of the Egyptians were expressions of, of divine consciousness uh, the uh, and then when I began to study the teachings of India, 
you know, you have the uh, many different expressions of personages or beings at different divine levels who have guided human, humanity and who are accessible to those who search. So suddenly this became just a tremendously powerful uh, idea to me, resource uh, that I began to work with. And then one day I said, well, someday I'll write a book and it'll be called Return of the Eons. Because by that I meant not that the eons had gone away, but that humanity had kind of lost consciousness of it, particularly in the Western world, where uh, science and technology and politics and war and all of that had led us into a dead end, that the Western consciousness had virtually collapsed into materialism and atheism, Uh, but that the way wasn't just to revive... uh, uh, old uh, religions or old uh, teachings that we didn't really understand, but but was an entirely new vision. And then when uh, the works began to appear of higher consciousness from from, uh, the extraterrestrial world coming into uh, our awareness through channeling and through uh, those types of contacts, to me, it just suddenly uh, I saw that here was an entirely new way of approaching it. That you didn't have to just go back and read old books and try, you know, and write college papers about it. You had the opportunity today to experience the presence of the higher consciousnesses, uh, higher beings yourself, and I believe we're doing that. As you go within, you're kind of clearing the, the debris of, of old ideas and the, and the pollution of the what the conditioning, in a sense. And the, one of the potentials is to become a channel for divine consciousness. Yes, that's correct. A channel for communication yes. with these higher levels of consciousness. To do that, you have to get rid of the ego. And so in order to get rid of the ego, you have to understand the ego. And uh, that in itself is a whole spiritual path uh, that involves the realization of that we are not separate from creation. We are not separate from divine consciousness, that we are, in fact, at one with divine consciousness and that we can communicate with it, we can live by it, we can express it in our relationships, and we can give it to others. And to me, that's the real revolution of our era. Well, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Oh, I just want to reflect on that now. That's <laughs> <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> just one last question. When you're going around Ireland and, and, and in nature and in nature and other parts of the world, has that really increased your kind of gratitude for the uh, beautiful parts of, of uh, Earth that we have, having you know, the slight uh, <laughs> less hospitable surfaces of other planets? Is it, has it made you very, very grateful for this lifetime that we have? Karen has said some interesting things. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't you remember what they are? I like it. <laughs> well, at the beach up at... Uh, uh, St. Finan's Bay. You said it was the most beautiful place you've ever seen. Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's obvious. <laughs> but yeah. no, it's a. Uh, I mean, I I do 
just knowing within our solar system how unhospitable any other planet would be to the sort of life form that we are, yes. yeah, the Earth is a, is a beautiful place to be. And you know, I hope it stays that way or becomes, goes back to what more what it was in that it's, the world has become polluted. And That's absolutely brilliant. Yes, I mean, I, I was, uh, there's no, no way we can keep St. Finian's Bay and Valencia Island as a great secret. <laughs> it's been, um, it had to come out with so many people to but really it. so much of what we've seen and, and this is true in the US also we come from what I consider a very beautiful area of the country um, the mountains and the rivers and the mountain streams and um, I really appreciate that I mean, coming from living in the city it's wonderful to be able to see every day the natural beauty of the world around us that is fantastic. And is there anything else that you'd um, like to say to listeners? You've got your new new book out, which is The Return of the Eons. Mm-hmm. And are you also doing um, talks? I know you're trying to be on holiday, and I roped you into this, so I don't no, appreciate happy to, that. happy to be doing uh, Well, that's, that's great. And uh, is there more of this happening at home, or is, is the focus mainly on your meditation groups? Or? Well... I have to say that uh, we have a, a special affinity for the Divine Mother. Uh, and, and we believe very strongly that the one, one of the great changes that the Earth is going through now and that humanity is going through is to gain a much deeper understanding and appreciation for the Divine Feminine. Uh, and um, I'm quite convinced that we were guided on this journey by the Divine Mother. Uh, Who likes been, Ireland very much. likes <laughs> Ireland very much. <laughs> and, and we've gone to see the stone circles. We've gone to see the standing stones and the cathedrals, and the cathedrals and the beautiful landscapes. And the Divine Presence, particularly the Mother Power, is here very strongly. Uh, we're very, very grateful for having been able to experience that and to share it with others. We, we through this, you know, the kind of contact we're having with you today, Francis, and that we had in West Cork and uh, Cork City and other places, we've just constantly been meeting people with open hearts, uh, with open minds, and it's been a tremendous pilgrimage for us that we hope to repeat here again, uh, other places, and share wherever in the world people will have us. So we're, this is part of that journey as well now. Well, that's absolutely great. Um, so it's uh, uh, richardccook.com mm-hmm. um, right. that contacts you. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, and we do have, we have a new website also we just are bringing up. It's called uh, www.meditate Heal Ascend. dot org. Hope and vision of that. Yeah, we 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 have this little. Uh, we're calling it. You know, you got to put a label on things at some point, I guess. So we're calling it uh, Ascension Meditation and Healing. You know, this kind of collection of practices and contacts and so on. So the new website is uh, MeditateHealAscend. dot org. But you can get there either way. You can go through richardccook.com or 
or through the new website. And they all point to the same things. Very reassuring thing for, for everybody and coming from you is the vision that the earth isn't just in a state of uh, decay or ruination, but that there is a possibility to ascend to a new earth. Um, and um, which I get the impression might not be as you know life as we know it, more of a, a kaleidoscope of, of experience that we have to be prepare ourselves mentally and emotionally to accept what happens next. But the, you have said, haven't you, that the rising of consciousness might allow for a new beginning for some. For the Earth is changing so fast. Uh, the, the consciousness of the Earth itself uh, is changing in so many ways that uh, we cannot cling to the old things we think we possess. You know, if, we, if, if our number one question is, how can I hold on to my money? <laughs> We're not going to go very far. Uh, much better to uh, share it and give it away and create new enterprises and help other people. Uh, the, the the future lies in giving, serving, and helping, not clinging and fearing and and standing in the way of uh, of a perception of of loss. Uh, the changes are here; they're happening now, and if we can become part of that uh, through sharing, giving, loving, uh, then we'll be part of the new earth. Uh, in a very very positive way, it will take time. I mean, this this will take time. Uh, we may not necessarily see it in our present lifetime, but our present lifetime is only one small part of a great continuum of life. We, we, we firmly believe in reincarnation. We've been here before. Uh, we'll be here again. Uh, and we that's part of our growth. Uh, Karen has a very strong interest in past life regression. She's beginning to study and has done work with that. Uh, I fully believe in that and, and support that. We have I you know the idea of, of belonging to a soul group of many different beings through many different lifetimes is a very powerful idea. These are the kinds of things that we need to expand into in our consciousness and not just cling to our very small perception of one life in this body that's going to break down and end very soon, you know, which is kind of what everybody uh, worries about. But that's not who we are. That is not who we are. That's just one little snapshot of, of a present existence. But even that can be transcended. And when you go into, you know, you may feel uh, during the day, well, I'm not feeling too good today, you know, aches and pains and problems and then you sit down at night or in the morning and you experience divine consciousness in your meditation and find yourself in a state of exaltation that is just so beautiful that you never want to leave it then you realize life is way more than these little problems that I, you know, that I seem to have uh, when I'm out there struggling. Life is way more than that. And to have that more often and more continuously, and you can have it more often if you will work with other people. Uh, we were speaking last night in our meditation of, 
of how great it is when people come together and form a meditation group where once a week they, they meditate and they experience transcendental consciousness. Even if it's just a taste of it, it changes everything. And that's what we need to look for. Yes, uh, I'm, I um, would have said that with my my work as well. Since you, you start by reaching, finding your way back to inner stillness, or um, well, I think you might say that the inner silence, and then try and spend more and more time there. So it's it's not necessarily a leap when you say transcendental consciousness. It might sound like a big spiritual leap mm-hmm. for some, but it can be experienced initially as as a, a moment of, yeah. of quiet from yeah. um, yeah. within. Or a, or a vision of beauty, of external beauty. You know, before you see a, hear a bird call or yes. or a, you know, a child. Karen's been seeing faces of children wherever we go, and the beauty that you see there is a reminder of the divine within. So, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. Brilliant. It's everywhere. Brilliant. Well, I'll stop there. And uh, I uh, thank you ever so much for You're talking welcome. to me, and uh, hopefully our paths will cross again. Mm-hmm. Come to the US with us. Oh, great! <laughs> thank you. Embrace the morning with a new connection. Just look around you. There's colors everywhere. Into the sunrise Out of the shadows Outside your window The world awaits you there You don't have to be alone Unhappy in your room Then greet the more.